to welcome those folks joining us online. If you've got a Bible this morning, go ahead and take it and go to the book of Acts in the New Testament and find chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, just hold that ready for a minute. Let me talk to you for just a minute while you're doing that about vintage Christmas, which is our theme for Christmas this year at Mount Pleasant. If you haven't already had the opportunity to read the blog that I wrote recently to this, that uh, explains vintage Christmas, then I would encourage you to do that. You can see that on our website. Just go to our website and uh, click on the resources icon, and one of the options will be uh, the different blogs that I have written, or you can just look on the different social media sites uh, that the church has. Christmas uh, is going to be very special, and we're going to have a great Christmas, but it's going to look a little bit different this year at Mount Pleasant because of the, the road closures and the construction. And one way in particular is that uh, the second week of December, we've always had a great big uh, Christmas celebration, a big special Christmas service. We're not doing that this year. We're not adding extra services. Normally, we would have one on Friday night, two on Saturday, and then two on Sunday morning. But we're not doing that this year. But next weekend will be special because we'll have our children's choir singing in all of our weekend services, Saturday night, and then Sunday at 9.15 and Sunday at 11 o'clock. Now, if you uh, are bringing guests or family members because you want them to see your child in the Christmas choir, which is great, I hope you do that, then my only request is that you encourage those guests to come either Saturday night at 6 o'clock or Sunday morning at 11 because, honestly, we have no room on Sunday morning at 9.15. I mean, we have very few empty seats. Uh, pretty much every week at that service. And so we really need your help on that. So bring your family and friends to uh, hear the Christmas choir or to experience next week's Christmas service either Saturday night at 6 o'clock or Sunday morning at 11. That would be a great, great help to us. This is the fourth and final weekend of our God, Money, and Me series. So far, we've talked about breaking down the power of money, about getting a grip on materialism. Last weekend, we talked about what it looks like to take control of our finances. And we're going to conclude this weekend with a sermon called How to Become a Generous Giver. I'm convinced that deep down inside of every single one of us is a desire to be generous. Now, honestly, for some, that desire for generosity is not deep down inside. It's on the surface because you are someone who responds quickly to any need or opportunity that comes along. I've seen that happen here over and over again uh, related to our change for a dollar story. Uh, some weekends, the change for a dollar story will be so moving and so compelling that it's not uncommon for us to have people contact us and say, listen, I was so moved by the change for a dollar story uh, this weekend that I want to do more than just give my dollar. And that generosity has taken form uh, in the form, has, uh, has been demonstrated in the form of a lot of different things. People have been overwhelmingly generous with some of our change for a dollar recipients. Uh, I, I, I think about whenever we come to church and I put out what I call those tip jars. When you come to church and you see those plastic jars on either side of the stage, you know that I'm going to ask you for a special offering on that weekend related to a special need. And so many of you are incredibly generous when I do that. I think about when I came back from India in 2018, and I told you the story about how I had that conversation with Brother Ajay Lal, and he said, he said, uh, Brother Chris, my evangelists and church planners can be so much more effective if they have a motorcycle to get around, and a motorcycle costs about $1,000. And you responded incredibly. We bought dozens and dozens of motorcycles for those evangelists and church planners. Most recently, I put the tip jars out, and I told you about our Impact Fairfax campus. That's one of our church campuses in a different neighborhood in Indianapolis. The Fairfax neighborhood is a very rough neighborhood, a lot of high crime in that neighborhood. And I told you right behind the church there 
is a house that's been a crack house in that neighborhood for years. It's been a place of prostitution. It's been a place of great crime. But now we had the opportunity to buy that. We had a limited window opportunity to buy that. And I put the tip jars out and asked for extra money. And you gave overwhelmingly, generously. And that house belongs to us now. And we're going to change the future for that location there in that Fairfax community. Uh, and, and so for a lot of people, you know, their desire to be generous is right on the surface and they're willing to respond to just about any need. Now, honestly, some people you have to dig a little bit deeper to get to their uh, generosity desire. But the bottom line is I really believe that everyone has a desire to be generous. And here's why I believe that. I believe that because I think everyone wants to make their life count. I believe that everybody wants to see their life make a difference in the world. And while most of us will never be rich and most of us will never be famous and most of us will never be in positions of power and influence in the world, every one of us can make a difference. Every one of us can make our life count simply through a willingness to be generous. I read a story this last week about a man named Andrew Levy who lives in Jupiter, Florida, and, Florida, and somehow he became aware of the fact that there were 430 students in the nine public schools in Jupiter, Florida, who didn't get a hot lunch at school because of unpaid school lunch debt. In the nine public schools, elementary through high school in Jupiter, Florida, 430 students didn't get a hot lunch. When everybody else got a hot lunch, they just got a cheese sandwich. And so he contacted the school district, found out what the debt was, and then sent a check, won a large amount of money, sent a check for $944 to pay off all of the late lunch day debt at the Jupiter School District. And you hear about that kind of generosity, and it moves you. It makes you want to be generous because you think, you know what, I could do something like that. $944 isn't a lot of money. Generosity is inspiring. Maybe you read the story about how uh, a couple of years ago on Father's Day in 2017, just south of us, down in Scottsburg, Indiana, there was a woman who was a regular customer at the local McDonald's, and she was in the drive-thru. It was 8.30 at night on a Sunday night, Father's Day, 2017. And she looked in her rearview mirror, and she saw a man behind her in a van, and he appeared to have lots of children in the van with him. And so she said to the person working at the drive-thru window, you know what, I want to say happy Father's Day to this guy in a special way. I want to pay for his meal. He had ordered two quarter pounder meals, a Big Mac meal, and several Happy Meals. And so she paid for all of his food as just a simple act of generosity and a simple way to say Happy Father's Day. Well, that's not that unusual a thing because people do that all the time, right? When there was a burger, it used to be a Burger King right over here, okay? Now it's a Mexican restaurant. I'm not sure how you go from being a Burger King to a Mexican restaurant, but okay. It's called uh, Rosita's. <laughs> Sounds like a place you might want to eat sometime. Anyway, I used to go to that Burger King every morning on my way to work, and oftentimes I would pay for the food for the person behind me just as a way to say, hey, I hope you have a great day. Let me help you get it started off on a good note. You've probably done the same thing, okay? It's usually just a handful of dollars for something like that. Well, what made this different was that the man behind her, whose meal she paid for, paid it forward, and then the next car paid it forward, and the next car paid it forward, and the next car paid it forward. And from 8.30 in the evening on that Sunday evening, Father's Day 2017, until midnight when the McDonald's closed, 167 consecutive cars paid that act of generosity forward. Can you imagine what that was like? 
Now, we hear stories like that, and we think, man, that's inspiring. And stories like that oftentimes make us want to be generous because we think, I could do something like that as well that doesn't require a lot of money. But that doesn't mean there aren't plenty of generosity stories that do involve a lot of money. Like the story of a man named Bob Thompson who lived in Belleville, Michigan. This is hands down my all-time favorite story when it comes to generosity. Bob started a business in the basement of his house, the same small, modest house he lived in for most of his adult life. And over the course of the next 40 years, he grew that small business, it was an asphalt company, into a huge company. And ultimately, he sold it 40 years later for $422 million. He took the proceeds of that, at least $128 million of the proceeds of that, and then divided it among his 550 employees. He gave $2,000 for every year of service to all of his hourly employees, even though he had already provided them with either a 401k or a pension on top of their regular pay. He made 80 of his employees instant millionaires by giving them enough money so that after taxes, and by the way, he paid their taxes, after taxes, they would each walk away with $1 million. And then he and his wife took $100 million from the sale of the company and established the Thompson Foundation designed to help low-income people rise above poverty and become self-sufficient. I'm telling you, you hear stories of generosity like that, and it moves you because generosity is inspiring. In fact, let me ask you a question. You hear a story like that, and you can have one of two responses. What would your response be? Either your response would be, man, I wish I had a boss like that. Or it might be, man, I wish I could be a boss like that. What would it be for you? But stories of generosity are not limited just to the world around us in the modern day that we live in. You find lots of stories of generosity in the Bible as well, and that's what brings us to Acts chapter 4. And so, if you've got your Bible open there to Acts chapter 4 and you're able this morning, go ahead and stand with me for a brief reading of Scripture. Our text is not very long today. It's just Acts chapter 4, verses 32 through 35. I've got my NIV Bible here with me this morning. You follow along as I read beginning in verse 32. This is one of many descriptions you find in the book of Acts about the very first church. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. There were no needy persons among them, for from time to time those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. All right, there it is. You can be seated. We always ask for God <clears throat> to bless the reading and the hearing of his word. One of the things that we need to understand about the church and this has been true from the very beginning, is the church has always been a place of generosity. The church has always been a place involved in helping others. That was true in the beginning, and it's true today. I mean, just think about it from the perspective of the book of Acts, for example, which tells us how the church began and how it grew from there. The very first church was the church in Jerusalem. It started on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And this is how it's described in Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 42. 
They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. That's the very first description. And then you go a couple of chapters later to Acts chapter 4, what we just read, which sounds remarkably similar to the very first description about the generosity and the sacrifice of the members to benefit those who are in need. Then you go to Acts chapter 6, and you see the church in Jerusalem being generous by providing food and the, by providing for the needs of widows and for orphans. You go to Acts chapter 15, and you see a special council of leaders meeting to talk about what they do next in the church because the church has just grown exponentially, and now there's all kinds of questions uh, about how the church is supposed to operate and about different protocols related to the church. And one of the things that comes out of that special council in Acts chapter 15 is the church decides that they're going to focus on a ministry of outreach to the poor. From the very beginning, the church has been committed to generosity. It's been committed to principles of giving and generosity, and that hasn't changed today. In fact, let me just be bold for just a couple of minutes. I, I think today the church makes a difference all around the world because of the generosity of committed Christians just like many of you. In fact, I don't think it would be wrong to say that if all of the good things that the church did today in the name of Jesus were to suddenly stop, the world would spin into chaos, and it would spin into chaos because there would be too many people to count who would become homeless and hungry and forgotten because the church meets the needs of so many people in the world today. The church makes a difference in the world today, again, because of committed and generous givers but because the needs and the opportunities in the world around us never end, our need to continue to be generous givers never ends as well. And so the question is, how do I become a generous giver? Or how do I continue to be a generous giver? Well, what I'm going to do is take a few minutes and just use that brief text from Acts chapter 4 that we just read to try to answer that question. There are three things that really stand out to me, and I'm going to try to be real simple as I go through them. If you're someone who likes to take notes, write down next to number one the very first thing. The very first way we make a commitment to become a generous giver is we have to break the attachment. Write those down next to number one. Write those words down. And I go back to verse 32 where Luke, who is the author of the book of Acts, writes this about this church. All the believers were one in heart and mind. Now note this. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. Before you can become a generous giver, you have to break the attachment of things. You have to break the attachment of possessions in your life. I read a story this last week about a man named John Michael Talbot, who is the general minister of a place called the Hermitage, which is a community of monks, nuns, and families belonging to a religious order called the Brothers and Sisters of Charity. Everyone in the group is committed to simple living, and everyone in the group has relinquished all but the most necessary of their possessions. I read about an interview with this man, this John Michael Talbot, and when he was asked about this, he said, taking a vow of poverty is not a cure for materialism. Many people come to this community and go from being selfish with thousands of dollars to being selfish with a coffee mug. 
Isn't that interesting? In order to become a generous giver, you've got to let go of your attachment to things, and that includes money. You know, I can honestly say, as someone who's been a pastor for many, many years, that the happiest people I have ever met and the happiest people I know are the people who walk that narrow line of having things, because in this world, there are certain things that you have to have, but who walk that narrow line of having things without being attached to those things. It's no coincidence, friends, that the word misery begins with the word miser. Because a miser is someone who hangs on to things forever and still ends up miserable. We make a difference in our lives when we find a way to break our attachment with things. A couple of weeks ago in this sermon series, I shared a message called uh, Getting a Grip on Materialism. And we looked at a passage of scripture in Ecclesiastes chapter 5 written by Solomon, who was arguably the wealthiest man who ever lived. I mean, Solomon was a man who literally had all the money in the world in the sense that there wasn't a single thing the world had to offer that he couldn't buy. There wasn't an experience that the world had to offer that he couldn't buy. And yet in the end, he said about all of his wealth and all of the things that the world had to offer is that it was all meaningless. Listen to how he said it specifically in Ecclesiastes chapter 5 and verse 10. Maybe you'll remember this verse. Solomon says, whoever loves money never has money enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. And then he said, this too is meaningless. Well, I think you can play with some words and get the same meaning in that verse. And you could say, whoever loves things never has things enough, never has enough things. And in the end of the day, that's meaningless. If you're somebody who has a stronger attachment to things in this world than, a, than, than desire for being generous, then you're never going to be a generous giver. You've got to break the attachment of things. The second thing I've got written down here, right down next to number two in your handout, is that if you want to become a generous giver, you've got to make the commitment to invest in people over possessions. You've got to make the commitment to invest in people over possessions. And I go back to verses 34 and 35 of Acts chapter 4 to see this. Because this is what Luke wrote again about the first church in Jerusalem. There were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. An absolutely crucial step in becoming a generous giver is understanding that people are more important than possessions, that people are more important than things. The first church at Jerusalem understood that, and as a result, when needs rose among their body, people who had the ability sold their possessions, gave the money to the apostles so that they could use it to meet those needs. Now, let me say a couple of things about this real quick so there's no misunderstanding. First of all, I, I really believe that the giving that is described there, this kind of giving was completely voluntary. In other words, I don't believe, there's, and there's no record in the book of Acts that would make us think this, I don't believe that the apostles forced anybody to give this way. They didn't force this kind of generosity from anybody. Because at the end of the day, how many of you know you can't force somebody to give? You can't force someone to be generous. This kind of generosity, the kind of generosity that honors God is something that can only come from someone's heart. There's an old saying that goes like this. You can give without loving, but you can't love without giving. Think about that for a minute. You can give without loving, 
but you can't love without giving. And what that means is if you love Jesus and you're thankful for the difference that he's made in your life, if you love Jesus and you're thankful for the difference that he's made in the life of your family, and you know that he can do the same thing for others, that he can do the same thing for other families, then that love will motivate you to give generously to help make sure that happens. It's really just that simple. These new Christians at this church in Jerusalem were so excited about what was happening and about what they were experiencing that their excitement overflowed into generosity. Their giving was completely voluntary. The second thing I would say about this kind of giving is that I really, and I don't really see this in the text, but I think this is common sense. These people were selling extra possessions, not basic possessions. In other words, they weren't giving away lands and houses or selling lands and houses and giving the money away and putting themselves into poverty along the way. What they were doing is they were just simplifying their lives. They were selling lands and houses and just simplifying their lives. They weren't giving themselves into poverty because then they would just become a burden themselves on the church in Jerusalem. They would have just been a part of the many people who had needs. They were just simplifying their lives, which, friends, is something that all of us can do and honestly probably in many cases something that all of us should do. Now, let me say this, and I always am careful to say this every year when we talk about money. That doesn't mean that you, it's wrong to own things. That doesn't even mean it's wrong to own a lot of things. That doesn't even mean it's wrong to own a lot of really nice things. It means that our first priority in our lives as Christians is reaching and serving others in the name of Christ, not just accumulating more things. I read this last week, the story of a man named Alan Barnhart. He's an American businessman who owns and runs a business along with his brother that's valued at $250 million. It was a family business that he and his brother took over. He he was telling his story. He was sharing his testimony in the article that I read, and he said when he was in college, he was already a Christian, but when he was in college, he began to read the Bible more than he had ever done before, and he said especially the Gospels. And as a result, he became determined that when he went into business, he wouldn't allow any financial success he might enjoy to become a source of spiritual failure, which is exactly what can happen, friends. I don't know if we all understand that all the time. But the Bible gives lots of warnings about not letting financial success result in spiritual failure. You remember when Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6, beginning in verse 9, he said, people who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. He went on to say, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money, listen to this, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. You're naive if you don't believe that money and a lot of money doesn't have the potential to, have, to do serious damage on your spiritual life. And so he didn't want any success that he might experience as a businessman to lead to some kind of spiritual failure. And so this is what he did. When he and his brother took over the family business, it was called Barnhart Crane and Rigging. Actually, it's still, it's still active today. It's a business that has locations all over the United States. When they took over the family business, they set incomes for themselves that would enable them to support their families 
in comfortable middle-class lives, and they agreed that anything they made beyond that would be given away to ministry, particularly ministry in developing countries. And under their leadership, that's what they did. And the business began to grow. The first year, they were able to give away $50,000. The second year, they were able to give away $150,000. Fast forward several years down the road, and they were giving away $1 million a month. They also placed 99% ownership of their company into a trust that will ensure that when they have departed, all the proceeds from their business will continue to be invested in ministry. Alan said in, in the article where he was sharing his testimony that he doesn't regret the decision to limit his income because he, his wife, and his children have been able to visit the projects they support and see the impact in people's lives. And he says, as a result, giving is fun. Now, if I were to take what I read about this man, Alan Barnhart, and I would rewrite it in the form of a challenge, I would write something like this. Being a genuine follower of Jesus means being generous. And we become generous, friends, when we simply choose to invest in people over possessions. Write down next to number three in your handout, the third thing I want to share with you. We need to prioritize reasons to give over reasons not to give. And my point here is really simple. A, a lot of people look more for reasons not to give than they look for reasons to give. And honestly, I believe there are four main reasons why people do this, why people in the end choose not to give and not to be generous. I think the first one is personal debt. These don't come in any particular order. But I think the first one is personal debt, and I just think that from all the people that I've talked to over the years, nothing reduces your capacity to give and be generous more than personal debt. And one of the dangers of personal debt is that when you're, when you're deep in debt, then every dollar that comes in is already accounted for. It's already spoken for. You don't have the ability to do anything with it beyond pay for what you've already obligated yourself to. You've already dug a hole that's almost impossible at times to get out of. And that personal debt doesn't allow you the opportunity to be generous. The second thing I've written down here is consumerism. That keeps us from being generous sometimes. It's easy to buy into the message of the world that more stuff brings more joy, that more stuff brings more security, that more stuff brings more happiness, but it's all a lie. At the end of the day, you're not gonna find any long-lasting meaning in your life or satisfaction in your life from things or from worldly experiences. And if consumerism, your desire for more and more and more is keeping you from being generous, then quite frankly, you have a problem. And let me just pause here for a moment and say this. If it's personal debt and consumerism that keep you from being able to be generous or making the commitment to be generous, then this is what you need to do, honestly. As soon as this service is over, you need to go out these back doors, walk into the commons area, and you need to find our financial freedom table. It's usually up against this closest wall. And there'll be somebody there who can talk to you about enrolling in the next Financial Peace University class that starts in January or the next Legacy Journey class that starts in January. There'll be somebody there who is probably one of our financial coaches who is a trained, certified financial coach who can maybe set an appointment with you so you can go through your finances with somebody who's not going to judge you, is simply going to be there to try to help you and coach you into how you can get your financial life into better order into an order that is more pleasing to God than it is right now. You need to do that as soon as this service is over. We have some incredibly 
committed, gifted people serving that ministry who would love nothing more than to serve you in this area. You need to put aside your pride. You need to put aside your fear or whatever it is every year that makes you choose not to follow through on this, and you need to stop by there and have a conversation with them today. The third reason why I think a lot of people don't give is fear. Many people uh, don't give because their fear and anxiety about what might happen in the future is so great that it causes them to respond by hanging on tightly to everything they have today. But here's the problem with that, friends. That kind of perspective reflects no faith and no trust in God. And you can't live your life with no faith and no trust in God and, and, and model what New Testament Christianity is supposed to be all about. Bible says we live by faith. We walk by faith and not by sight. Now listen, are there things that can happen tomorrow that we don't expect, that we might not be aware of, that we don't have anything to do with, that can have serious ramifications on our personal finances? Yes, there are. It's happened in the past. It's happened before, and it'll probably happen again. But we trust God in the midst of those things. And the Bible says as believers... We live by faith and not by sight. Hebrews 11.6 says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. And so if the fear and anxiety keep you from being able to give, then you need to think about your life of faith. The fourth thing I've written down here is just what I'm calling a flawed perception. I think many people fail to be generous because they have perceptions. You know, every time we come to November in our calendar year and we have a sermon series that, and I talk about money and I talk about generosity, that this is all about the church's need just to pay its bills. That's all this is about. Or they think, you know, everything about money is personal. It's so personal, in fact, that it's no one else's business, not even God's business. But that's not true, friends. There are a lot of reasons why every single aspect of your financial life is God's business. And the reasons begin with this one. Everything belongs to God. And one of the natural implications of understanding that everything belongs to God is that since everything belongs to God, every single spending decision is a spiritual decision. I don't think you can argue that if you believe what the Bible says, that everything belongs to God. But the bottom line is you can't let the reasons not to give, whatever they might be, become your default mode when it comes to questions of generosity. One of the reasons why I'm committed to generosity here at Mount Pleasant is because I know what we do with the money that comes in. I know the difference that money makes, the impact that money makes both locally and globally every single day. I'm just like you. I get approached by all kinds of people asking for money. I get things in the mail, you know, especially this season of year. You can't go anywhere. You can't go and buy a present for somebody and not have the person at the, at the register ask you, do you want to make a donation to whatever it is that they're supporting, whatever charity? And let's be honest, most of the time they're all worthy causes. And sometimes I'll choose to be generous, but I don't have a problem saying no either. And I don't have a problem saying no because I am so deeply committed to what happens through the ministry of this church. That's my first priority. That's what I want to fund. And this church has been doing that in this community for many, many years. I think I probably told you the story some time ago about the neighborhood that I used to live in. I used to live, Sandy and I used to live at the end of a cul-de-sac, and uh, there was a woman who used to ride her bicycle through that neighborhood. She's an older woman, and she wasn't a very pleasant woman. I mean, honestly, at least in my personal experiences with her, I don't know any other way to describe, well, I know other ways to describe her. I'm just not going to do it in church. 
I mean, if you can picture a woman riding a bicycle and you can hear the soundtrack to the, sound, or to the Wizard of Oz in your mind, then you get an idea of what I'm talking about. Well, I'm standing out in my front yard by the curb, close to the curb, and she comes riding the bicycle down one day, and she makes a loop, a circle around the cul-de-sac, and I think she's just going to go away. But then she turns, and she makes another loop around the cul-de-sac. And then she comes over, and she stops by where I'm standing. And she looks at me, and she said, do you know when that guy across the cul-de-sac put that shed in his backyard? And do you know if he got permission from the homeowners association to do that? And I said, I'm sorry, I don't. And then she looked at me. She said, you're the pastor of that big church down the street, aren't you? And I said, yes. <laughs> and she looked at me and she said, what do you do with all that money? And I understand how that could be an easy perception from somebody on the outside. But I was thankful that day that I could answer her with integrity and say, we give a great deal of it away because we do. Oftentimes over $2 million every single year. Listen, I just go back to one thing in particular that I see in this story about the first church in Acts chapter 4, and that is that if we want to become generous givers, then we need to be committed to investing in people over possessions because it's people that matter. And people have an eternal aspect because all of our souls are eternal. A little over a week ago, we had celebration of abundance in here. You know, every year we hand out the blue bags and we ask you to fill them with all the fixings for a Thanksgiving dinner and put $20 in there and we give those away to people so they can have a nice Thanksgiving meal. I think this year we had 930 people just through our impact center that we were providing meals for. That doesn't count the people at Impact Old Southside, Impact Fairfax, and Impact Bethany. But we celebrate that on a Friday night. It was uh, Friday night, November 22nd, by having a service in here and those folks come. Jared Bayer, who was up here on the platform, our student ministry worship leader, led in a time of worship. And then I get up and I, sh I share a brief message that has something to do with Thanksgiving. And it's one of my favorite events because the people, honestly, they're just so genuine. They're so real. There's, no, there's, no, um, uh, there's nothing false about them, no pretension about them at all. They're, they're here because they have needs and they hear, they're here because they know people care about them here. After I was finished, I sat down over here next to Sandy, and then Heidi got up, and she gave instructions about how to pick up your food, and everybody was dismissed. And I stood up, and I looked, and this aisle right over here, there was a woman walking down the aisle named Brenda that I had met several years ago at uh, Impact Thursday out at the Impact Center. She'd been a faithful member for a long time, and she's so sweet. You know, she's an older woman, lived a hard life, uh, a lot of hard experiences, but so faithful, uh, caring for her family in some difficult times. Uh, and I was so thrilled that our Impact uh, Center pastor, Steve Saunders, a few years ago, baptized Brenda right here in this baptistry one Saturday evening after service. She gave her life to Christ. I hadn't seen her talk to her in a while, but a couple years ago, she was diagnosed with lung cancer. And the treatment had been hard. I hadn't gotten to talk to her in a while, and I almost didn't recognize her when she was walking down the aisle. She'd lost a lot of weight, and she always had really long, flowing silver hair, and that was very short because of multiple rounds of chemotherapy. She was on oxygen. But she came all the way down the aisle, and I walked up to meet her, and she hugged me, and we exchanged greetings. And while she had her arms around me and hugging me, she told me that the doctors told her she needed to go to hospice care. I doubt there's anybody here this morning who doesn't know what that means. 
And it made me so thankful. That when we built that impact center back there several years ago, and we transitioned our food and clothing ministry into what I just think of as a different kind of a church, that somebody like Brenda could come there and have her physical needs met, but also meet people who loved her and cared about her, and also found somebody who loved her enough to tell her the good news about Jesus so that her life could be changed for all eternity. And that's what I'm talking about when I talk about investing in people over possessions. Do you know anybody like Brenda? Do you care about somebody like Brenda? That's really what this is a part of. This is not about paying for the light bill. This is about living out a mission statement that says we want to change the world for Christ. One life, one family, one opportunity at a time. And so in your bulletin this morning is this card, this generosity commitment card. We do this every single year. This shouldn't be a surprise to you if you've been a part of our church for any length of time. And the things that are written on the card are based on the things we've talked about in this God, Money, and Me series. It says, because I understand the Bible teaches me that everything belongs to God and the way I handle money reflects the reality of my spiritual condition. Because I understand the importance of contentment, biblical principles for money management and generosity. And because I want to invest in people in eternity rather than possessions, I commit to, and there's three options, Begin to give faithfully and consistently with the tithe, and the word tithe is a word that simply means a tenth part, with the tithe as my generosity goal. Begin or continue to tithe as my measurement of generosity, and I know a lot of you do that, and I'm so thankful for you. Or begin, continue to give over and above the tithe as my measurement of generosity, and I know many of you do that as well, and I'm thankful for you. That's the box that my wife Sandy and I check every single year. And then I ask you to print your name and sign it and then... When you leave church today, if you're ready, if you're able to do it today, there's some gray baskets outside these, these front doors out here that you can drop these in. If you're not ready to do that, I understand that you can take that home and you can put it somewhere where you can see it and pray about it. You can have conversations about it and what you feel like God is leading you to do and bring it back next week and you can drop it in one of those baskets or drop it in the offering bag when it's passed uh, in next week's service. And don't forget, worry if you forget to bring yours back because... I got you covered. I'll have them in next week's bulletin as well. <laughs> we talk a lot about, I've taught a lot about giving, the giving of a tithe, a tenth part over the years here at Mount Pleasant. I'm, I'm, I'm not even going to talk about it in detail because this is the last weekend of the series. I know a lot of people push back on that because they say, well, pastor, that was a part of the Old Testament. And we don't, we're not obligated to follow the Old Testament any longer. We're no, New Testament Christians. And you know what? You're absolutely right. I don't believe in uh, teaching about the tithe, and I don't believe in practicing the tithe because I feel somehow obligated as a New Testament Christian to follow Old Testament law. I look at, at it as an eternal number, an eternal principle that reflects what it looks like to give God the first part, to give back to God the first part of what he's given to you. Let me ask you a simple question today. What do you think your life and your family would look like if you gave back to God the first part of everything that's most important to you? If you gave God back the first day of the week so that you could come and worship him and you let nothing get in the way of that. If you gave God back the first part of your day so you could spend time in devotion to him 
and you let nothing get in the way of that. And you gave God back the first part of everything that he's given to you so you could be involved in changing people's lives for all eternity. What kind of impact do you think that would have on your life and your family? A few weeks ago, and this is how we'll close, we sent our student ministry pastors, our middle school and our high school pastors, uh, Mike Sheely and Matt Pineda to India for 16 days with our mission partner, Dr. Ajay Law. And those two guys, along with Dr. Law, led three student conferences in India. I talked to Dr. Law, to Ajay on the phone recently. He's going to be here in January, and he's going to preach for us on the weekend in January. But he told me that at those three conferences, there were 3,682 young people, and that as a result of those three conferences, 793 of those young people chose to put their faith and trust in Christ and become Christians. Now, listen, I think that's something, first of all, to celebrate. That is definitely something to celebrate. But I will also tell you that those conferences were paid for by the generosity of all the people at Mount Pleasant Christian Church. We paid for every dime of those conferences, and it was kind of expensive, but it was worth it because 793 young people put their faith and trust in Jesus as a result. And those kinds of things, that kind of impact, quite frankly, is what's at stake when it comes to what you and I decide to do with these cards. I want you to pray with me this morning. Father, thank you for a chance to talk about these things today, and I pray that you would guide and direct our hearts, guide and direct our choices and our decisions and our commitments. Help us to be generous people who together make up a generous church. Sometimes we ask the question, can a single church in central Indiana change the world? And the answer to that question is always yes. And this is what it looks like. One life, one family, one opportunity at a time. Bless us now in Jesus' name. Amen.